sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 88 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And to let you all in on something that goes on ahead of every episode, I send every guest an informal agenda to keep the conversation structured and make sure we stick to the topic at hand. And this week's guest, Michael Miller of Barnard College, had zero interest in the agenda I had put forth before him, which originally was going to be on campaign finance reform and public funding of elections. So instead... I did something I've never done, which is I went into this conversation with zero idea what we were going to talk about and let the conversation go where it may. And it turns out professors know a lot. Who would have thought? It was a very fun episode to record, and the conversation led us back to a common theme we saw in the first episode of You Don't Have to Yell that has popped up again and again and again and again throughout time. I will be back at the end to explain more. Thank you for joining me, Michael. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Very good. Thanks for coming on. And uh, a couple of things I'll note about today's episode. Number one, um, you'll notice the expanse of books behind me. It was a result of me totally screwing up the settings on my lens. So if I'm a little blurry, uh, please forgive me. And uh, yes, these are indeed books and not just some creative Zoom background. Um, Secondly, before every episode, I try to provide, I, I try to get some structure to it. And part of the reason is I have a tendency to veer way off topic ask lots of questions tangentially related to the topic at hand. And really, it is more of an effort for me to put myself on a leash than anything else. Michael, you bear the distinction of successfully parrying off my efforts to to rein myself in. And so today's discussion, unlike a lot of episodes, is really just going to be freeform. Michael's uh, expertise and his focus are on things such as electoral reform and campaign finance. So our goal today is just to dig into Michael's brain and get everything we can out of it before our next appointment. Are you up for the challenge, Michael? You might be overestimating what's in there, but- Really? We'll find out. We'll do our best. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) So I guess to start things off, when you look at the political landscape in 2021, what do you view as the biggest structural issues facing us right now? Oh boy, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, we had talked about uh, campaign finance in the run up to this conversation. And I think I'll give you two answers. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll withhold one and we'll talk campaign finance later. All right. So when it's, when it's the, the landscape of elections and democracy more broadly, yeah. The thing that I, that really worries me and keeps me up at night is, you know, we have hundreds of election air quoting now reform 
mm-hmm. uh, bills being pounded through state legislatures, and and they're very concerning in, in detail. Yeah. You know, they 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 seem to be uh, taking power. Many of them are taking power away from uh, election officials, and we could talk you know, also about whether we want elected partisans in charge mm-hmm. of of many elections. But the fact that we're seeing attempts by Republican legislatures to seize the machinery of elections, uh, pretty clear attempts to make voting harder in many cases, and a signal that, you know, if when the rubber hits the road, as, as you know, we have seen in Kansas and, and Missouri, and to a lesser extent, Georgia and, and Texas, uh, among others, uh, a signal among these Republican legislatures that if the election doesn't go our way, what we're doing here is embedding in law the ability to undo them. You know, signals to me that we have the makings of an authoritarian move by one major party, and that I think is the the biggest problem that can that concerns me. Yeah, that that's a huge that's a huge concern of mine. And I always, whenever I talk about any party, I always lay my partisan cards on the table so everybody knows where I'm coming from. So for those of you who've been listening, just tune me out for a moment. You know, I was a Republican for years and eventually found myself politically homeless um, after the party, pardon the expression of Republicans listening, got a little too nutty uh, for my tastes. But what I understand from being a from being a Republican is that there is a general mistrust of media, there is a general mistrust of government, and there's also I would say a higher likelihood or maybe a a, a higher tolerance for uh, the use of violence on the part of the state, whether that's military or police. And I think what's concerned me about this latest development. Um, is that you have that mixture of people who are sort of insulated from outside opinion or naturally suspicious of it. Um, you have this uh, proclivity or this, this, this uh, like I said, this tolerance for violence. Um, and then on top of it now, you have a lot of very subtle hints towards America not necessarily being a democracy or in some cases, the right to vote being infringible. A great example and a great quote you hear a lot now, which drives me absolutely up a wall, is we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Um, Sounds little, but it's just a little chip away at that notion of one person, one vote. And um, I guess when you look at, you know, and obviously, all these bills are 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 <laughs> little anti-democratic snowflakes and special in their own little way. But are there any like overarching trends or any overarching strategies that are being used to keep the wrong kind of people out of out of elections or out of voting? I'm less worried about the things that tend to get a little bit more attention, right? So okay. massaging the the early voting rules or massaging the drive up rules, things like that. Uh, there's going to be a backlash to that. And people, the Democratic Party in, in is going to use the Georgia model uh, and expand to other states. I think Texas is first up there. And the party learned in Georgia that if you really do organize down to the precinct level, uh, if you really get that community effort, you can overcome almost almost anything. And one of the findings in our field, this work by Nick Valentino at at Michigan and others uh, has really found that when governments try to do this and when, when, when voters perceive that they, however they is defined, right? It could be your racial group, your class group, your whatever, 
if you believe that someone is trying to stop you from vote, that seeds the ground for a backlash effect. And, and the pushback could actually be more uh, voters. It could like people get so mad uh, that you actually might see more voters voting. So I'm less concerned about this because I think at the end of the day, you can organize your way out of it. You can train people in Georgia, what ID number to put on their form. You can organize people to help folks do that. But when you see legislatures, uh, seizing control over the machinery of elections. When you see uh, instructions from governors to election administrators that you know you have to have the same amount of machines in every precinct, regardless of the population of the precinct, those are really focused efforts to centralize power and actually thwart the democratic process. And they're much harder to combat with mobilization and organization. And so those are the things that I focus on. Yeah. And so it sounds to me like, like there's, there's this effort to really centralize control over elections and, you know, to maybe bring some folks listening up to speed and, and Michael, feel free to correct me or or fill in the blanks here. But, you know, my understanding is the system as it stands today is very decentralized, is very often run at the county or, or precinct level. And it sounds to me like a lot of these efforts and a lot of the things that concern you the most are the ones that take the power away from these local communities and centralize them in the the state houses across the country. Am I am I hearing you right or, or no? Yeah, I when I teach this stuff, I always equate this to, you know, we always learn about the Titanic when we're kids and how, you know, when the Titanic hits the iceberg, a few of those compartments filled up with mm-hmm. water, but the ship is able to float because it seals them off. And that's a good analogy for the way that elections are run, right? Thinking yeah. back to like Florida 2000, there were pretty big problems, especially in Palm Beach County, right? Mm -hmm. But the system as a whole is largely insulated from that. We were able to examine the problems just in that that one place. And Mm -hmm. so I think there is a lot of benefit to the variegation of election administration in America. But, you know, what we're seeing here is an effort and a lot of the time to remove a lot of local discretion from Mm -hmm. election administrators who, by the way, a Democratic or Republican, these mm-hmm. are hardworking people. Your county clerk, wherever you are, is someone who wants to get it right. You know, mm-hmm. they want to count every vote and they want to ensure that voters have a good experience. Removing that from them and, and telling them, uh, you know, how to run their elections, often with very little understanding of how it, it should work, uh, mm-hmm. that's pretty problematic. Yeah, you know, so our last guest or or guest two episodes ago is a precinct clerk for Polk County in Florida. And she's in she has just an encyclopedic knowledge of election administration uh, across the country. And the thing that I've learned from her, she's been on a couple times, is number one, that every region has its own idiosyncrasies. And even down to the precinct, when you talk about larger states like Florida, for example, and have their own different ways things need to be run due to geography, due to population, what what have you. Um, the second thing, and this is taking her words, is when you look at administrators, election administrators, they're, they're effectively geeks with clipboards is the way she describes them. You know, they're not people who necessarily, yeah, obviously they vote, they have a partisan opinion, but they're people who really want a good, clean election and want nothing more. Um, and it seems like somehow they've been lumped into that whole group uh, or in, in, I should say lumped into this sort of dark cabal of people who wish to thwart the electoral process. Um, 
one to kind of flip that on its head, you know, because we talked a little bit about the Republicans. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, my guest brought up about HR one, or one of the things she saw was problematic, was the uh, just the blanket expansion of early voting. And part of the reason for that was that you have some rural precincts that aren't very populous. Um, number one, it's it's unnecessary, but I think more importantly, it's also just financially onerous. You just can't do 15 days worth of early voting. That would be like everybody in the town effectively would have their own day to vote. Um, do you feel like, you know, when you look at, at sort of the Democratic side and their pushes to kind of counter these efforts, do you feel like efforts like that might backfire or is that more maybe part of the drama in a way where if they push, they can gain awareness? And like you said, there can be that blowback effect where more Democrats or more people turn out to vote against Republicans because of, of, of the, these, these bills going on at the state level. I think that there is a lot in HR1 that should be discussed and really carefully considered as the Senate works through this. You know, some of the standards, uh, you know, Jessica Huseman has written a, a, a very informative piece in Daily Beast that really walks through some of the issues that she sees uh, in the bill. And I think some of the standards, particularly when it comes to equipment upgrades, should be thought through. Like what is, what are appropriate timelines for mandating these things? When, when it comes to early voting, you know, people are often surprised when I say, you know, I think we might get a better election if we had less of it, uh, mm -hmm. just generally speaking. And, and that's fueled by some of the findings in, in our field uh, that really show that the, the, the less salient you make the election, uh, the less people kind of vote in it, right? So okay. if, I, if I start the voting process in September... Uh, you know, and you know that you can go any weekend to your, to your county clerk and you can fill out your, your vote, it becomes less uh, important, right? There's less of an emergency there. And so you put it off and you put it off and pretty soon you're just automatically putting it off. And then election day comes and goes and you never get there to begin with. But if you know that you only have two shots to vote early and then you have to go on the, on election day, that sort of uh, high importance of the date really stays with you. And, and so I think this is counterintuitive, but I think we actually get le less, is, less can be more uh, when it comes to early voting because it raises the salience of, of voting in, in people's minds. And so I'm fine with that. And, you know, the other argument for um, really thinking early voting through has to do with October surprises. What if uh, you're going back to 2016 is a great example. What if you voted in, you know, the last weekends of, of September for then candidate Trump and the access Hollywood tape comes out mm -hmm. that f completely changes. It may completely change how you feel about that candidate, but you can't get your vote back. Yeah. Uh, right. And so constraining closer to the election, I think results in a, a, a better small D democratic outcome there yeah and so you know like i get it i understand why people are sensitive to federal imposition of election standards but my response to that would would be to say that i think the most efficacious and consequential act ever passed by the united states congress is the voting rights act which mm -hmm established a baseline standard of, uh, you know, no racial discrimination in American elections. And I think we really need to calibrate any effort in federal 
election regulation to that North Star. Uh, that that needs to be our goal. First, do no harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you? This is maybe a little bit off topic, but I'll, but I'll ask it anyway. You know, one of the things that's come up again and again on this show um, has been the fact that what we're it, it's. I think it's best summed up with. Uh, I don't know if you've read Lee Drutman's uh, Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop, or you, you probably you know read some stuff of his, but. Um, it's, it's the way that, uh, that effectively elections have become, or I should say government has become uh, partisan trench warfare. And t- today the Republicans exist to deny the Democrats a win, uh, vice versa. If the roles were switched, the Democrats exist to deny the Republicans a win. And, and I guess when you look at these restrictions and this kind of march to erode, the right to vote of certain people. Do you feel like, is that, do you feel like that's sort of the inevitable outcome of this system we have and, and the inevitable outcome of this sort of, you know, hyper-partisan environment we live in where you are either all R or all D and God help you if you're in between. I don't think so. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a natural outcome to a system with embedded minoritarian protections, such as okay. the electoral college and the the filibuster, uh, right? So, you know, if you if you imagine a world without the filibuster, where a, a slim democratic, right now as we sit here today, a slim democratic majority could affect its agenda, right? Uh, right now, you know, the incentives for Republicans in the Senate is to obstruct, to delay, to paint the other side as whatever. Uh, and, you know, that leads to a certain kind of politics. Uh, I have really been amazed talking to students and others in the last couple months, or even people in my family talking about the filibuster. And they say, we have to keep it because we're terrified of what they, the other side, right? however you define that uh, we have to we're terrified of what they'll do when they're in the majority and that is such an american way to think about democracy we we can't do what we want because we're afraid of what other people will do instead if you get rid of the filibuster uh what you do is you allow whoever has control of that body to govern and that incentivizes them to pass policies that are popular. If they don't pass popular policies, they own those. And we assume then that voters are going to throw them out. And that's how every liberal democracy works, except us, right? And so I think when you empower the minority to behave in, you know, when you give them that much power in a legislative body, I think there are some really important downstream effects uh, that we we sort of blame on polarization. Polarization's fine. Um, not liking the other policies of the, the other team are fine. I think that should motivate you to vote and participate and engage and maybe even run for office uh, to carry that banner forward. But as long as we cling to things that are going to give a minority of people a large voice in government, that's how we get the politics that that I think we have. Understood. That's an interesting take because in a lot of ways, as you're describing it, it's almost like the filibuster is this kind of built-in election negator where, uh, again, we can just negate the effects of, of however slim a majority from getting anything done. 
So that's super interesting. I guess to kind of build on that and play devil's advocate a bit, um, you know, getting back to the way elections are run best at this local level, you know, it's generally my belief that uh, on the side of governing on the whole, um, that's also something where there needs to be a lot of flexibility at the local level, just due to the size and the diversity of our population. Um, and when I look at things like the Electoral College or the Senate, we'll take the filibuster out of the question. Um, what I see is this structure that effectively says, if you're going to pass law that is going to govern the whole of the land, there has to be kind of a higher threshold, or there at least has to be a very clear buy-in. What's what's your take on that? Is that wrongheaded or? I think that's fine. I think that's exactly how most of the founders looked at the Senate, right? George Washington has this story where he compares the United States Senate to the saucer, where you'd pour your, your tea to cool it before before it could be consumed. And they looked at it that way, but they never had the filibuster. Mm-hmm. John Adams, George Washington, Madison, they never had a filibuster in the Senate. The, the Senate was a, was a democratic body that worked on a 51 person vote. The assumption was that the people who were in that chamber were going to be mature and erudite and forward looking enough to break down policy and, and behave. Uh, yeah. Like grownups, right? Yeah. Uh, the filibuster is an artifact of slavery. It's like many other features in American democracy, and you know, really was wielded in the 1950s and 60s to prevent civil rights from being passed. And I, I think that should be brought up every time we we talk about it as well. And I will say, my thoughts on this have evolved uh, significantly. I mean, I I tend to be a purist. Uh, you know, when it comes to these things, but at, at some point we have to look at the way that things are working or not working. And we have to say, uh, let's, let's just throw in here and have a majoritarian democracy and, and see what happens. And you know what, if we lose the next election, maybe that's a signal that we didn't calibrate our, pro- our policies properly, give the other team aside, they'll make some corrections and at least we'll make like this thermostatic progress towards something instead of just throwing mud at each other in the Senate and on cable news. And so I have really come around on on issues like this. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country if the uptick in listeners to YDHTY is any indication. Now, first... As I've mentioned before, over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second, I want to hear from you. So let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. 
And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions, and I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the episode. One thing I wanted to get back to is you mentioned the origins of the filibuster. Could you just, because I don't think a lot of people, myself included, know this. Um, Could you just, is there a short summary of how the filibuster came about and why and how it's traditionally been used? Yeah, uh, I'm not expert on Senate rules, so I'll, I'll caveat this but uh and you're better so than me I, I i'll i'll do i'll do i'll give you an answer it might not be exactly uh <laughs> right but uh the, the filibuster is rooted in pre-civil war uh american political thought from the south so i don't know if you many of your your listeners are probably familiar with john c calhoun who was this firebrand senator from south carolina he was talking, you know, in the run-up to the Civil War during the the so-called nullification crisis, where you're seeing these state legislatures say, "Well, whatever the federal government says, if if we don't want to do it, we're not going to do. It. We're going to nullify that law," which is clearly in in conflict with the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Uh, Calhoun is at the same time developing this political philosophy that is sort of that goes along with this, right? He's got the the these this idea of the concurrent. Uh, majority, right? That, and he gets himself into this corner where he believes that a, like a minority actually should have rights in a democracy. And so, you know, you get to to this point in the Senate where they make this rule change to where you know the filibuster, a precursor of the filibuster as we understand it today, is enacted. I believe in about the 1840s, um, and it's it's rarely used, but it's there out of the recognition that you know bills about slavery are, are going to be highly contentious, and maybe we need to have a supermajority if we're going to do anything. Thing on them, it, and so it's little utilized at the time, and but really becomes more utilized in the in the civil rights movement in the nineteen fifties uh, and and sixties. If you look at just the way the the House and the Senate voted historically from the Civil War on, there is just absolutely zero instance of crossing party lines from you know the end of the Civil War until sometime around like 1915, 1920, something like that. And all of a sudden you see this level of like uh, bipartisan cooperation just shoot up and stay there until the civil rights era. And then about 10 years after it just falls off a cliff and it's back to where we are now. Um, and, and, and so, it, and it sounds to me too, like the filibuster and the talk of the filibuster is really nothing written into the constitution, but more just like an echo of Calhoun and of one party's desire to keep policies that were largely unpopular from being overturned. Am I hearing you right or, or no? I think that's right. If you go back to the founding, you can look at anything. You can look at the United States Senate and the Electoral College and, and their roots are in, in slavery and the, the desire of people from slave states at the Constitutional Convention to protect their interest. Uh, you know, like the three-fifths compromise amplifies the number of seats that southern states have because it counts enslaved people in the south as three-fifths of a a person well that gives them 
an artificial number of representatives in Congress because, you know, you have slaves who are not able to vote uh, their interest. But electoral votes come from the number of seats that you have in the Congress. And so you have these Southern delegates who recognize that they can inflate their own power and protect the institution of slavery via both the United States Senate, which, as we all know, gives more power to less populated rural states, uh, and uh, via the Electoral College, which did the same thing in presidential elections. And so many of the minoritarian basically all of the minoritarian features of the federal constitution are rooted in uh, one of two things. One, this sectional interest at the founding where these Southern states wanted to make sure that the more populous North wasn't going to swamp them and take away slavery. Or two, we can also understand uh, this, you know, when you had mentioned earlier that people say, well, we're a Republic and not a, not a democracy. Right. And yeah, you know, I hate that. Every political scientist gets that on a, on some <laughs> C minus paper that we get an in intro to American politics, uh, and it's a it's a very particular way to understand uh, American government. Madison, if you look at Federalist Ten, he clearly understands a republic to be just a democ a democracy where people a smaller number of people than the whole are are elected. Right? There's none of this minoritarian interest, but the founders. It could be argued created a government that they knew was going to put a little a little backstop in for the elite. This ours was a, was an elite revolution, and they knew they were outnumbered. And so you could look at uh, you pick your pick pick whatever you want to hate here, slavery or or you know like the moneyed elite that was protecting their own interests. But these institutions that are causing, in my view, a lot of problems uh, today, they're rooted there. They're rooted in, in protecting those interests two hundred years ago. You know, when I look at the Electoral College, I was I was always somewhat, I, I would say, not concerned with it, uh, or you know, I was I was kind of blasé about the issue of the Electoral College, um, and I and I always preface this statement first and foremost by stating that I was not a fan of Trump at any point in the run up to his election, during his tenure, or now. Um, that being said, the one thing Trump did during the election that I found really interesting and that led to his victory was the fact that he honed in on the North Midwest. He honed in on the Rust Belt. And I remember hearing him talk and the way he talked about everything, not just about trade agreements, but about immigration. It was a message that I saw really resonating with a lot of these states that ultimately led to his victory. And the thing that I noted after he won by an electoral, you know, by an elect by the by an electoral vote, you know, the thing that I noted is that the Democrats, to their part, you know, their party, a big part of their base was were the unions, and a big part of their base were the blue collar folks who did move over to the Trump side. And uh, in a lot of ways, I looked at that electoral victory as a way for that region to have influence. Uh, over federal policy when majority rule wouldn't necessarily pay attention to them because a huge part of the country benefited greatly from globalization and it was just these little areas that were left out. So in my mind, you know, regardless of the founding or the reasoning behind the Electoral College, I felt like in that instance, it did serve its purpose in giving some states some outsized, outsized power. Any, any thoughts on that? 
Well, I am from one of the smallest states in the union. I, I'm a native North Dakotan. And uh, as a result of that, was a big fan of the Electoral College for a long time. But, uh, you know, I... <laughs> Places like North Dakota have a lot more power than they would have if the Electoral College didn't exist, right? Uh, and that is one argument that that you can use. And another one, like like the one that you just brought up, is that it forces candidates to focus on issues important in various states. And as the composition of the battleground states changes, so too does the issue focus. But that's not always a, a good thing either. Uh, you know, like I, I grew up in a mining town. I, I know coal mining and the economies of mining pretty well. The writing's on the wall for coal miners. Uh, these are these are these are global market forces. There's no policy in the United States that's going to stop the continued erosion of of the place of coal in our market, and yet, um, you know, because of Pennsylvania being a battleground state, um, politicians tend to discuss and cater to that very small group uh, of of people. It's a very narrow industry. Uh, similarly, ethanol. Why is ethanol and the production of ethanol from corn so widely utilized in the United States? It's a net as far as I know, a net energy loser takes more energy to make a gallon of ethanol than, than you have in the gallon. Well, because the Iowa in the, in not only in the, in the primary process, but also very often in the general is a battleground state and candidates have to cater there. And so this is a two-edged sword for every voter who might be overlooked. Um, I can show you an industry that's probably held up as a result of this, uh, that, that maybe shouldn't be. And the, 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 the second premise, I think, in what you said, I, I would also question because, you know, this economic anxiety argument is brought up all the time, what I call diner journalism, where, you know, New yeah. York Times will drop a, a, a journalist into some diner in Pennsylvania and interview them and write a story about economic anxiety. But our field, you know, in political science really has not found that evidence. When we, when we control for a racial resentment, the effects of economic anxiety disappear. And this is work that Brian Schaffner has done. Uh, Michael Tesler has done a lot of work here. Uh, and it really, as far as we can tell, is as much or more about uh, hostile sexism and racial resentment among white voters in these areas as it is about them expressing an economic vote. So I think that should be part of the story as well. Um, do, do we want to elevate that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's interesting too because I the town I live in is still, you know, one of the few towns that I think has a has a decent mix of of blue collar and and white collar outside of Boston, and they're largely disappearing. And you know what I've noticed is, and the town's called Dedham. What I've noticed is what we call Old Dedham, which tends to be a bit more blue collar, um, a bit more conservative. They tend to be on the Trump side. And then the, what we call new datum, the white collar, the folks that work in information jobs and so on and so forth, uh, or in information technology and such, you know, those are the folks who tend to fall on the, uh, on the democratic side. Um, and, you know, some of these folks I, I know, and it's, it's interesting, the union folks who I know, I used to argue with back when I was Republican, uh, <laughs> I used to argue with them about voting Democrat. It's the, the tables have totally changed now. However, I've never tapped into that issue of racial resentment just because um, we never get there. 
I, I've been kind of processing everything you're saying, and and you know we've 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 jumped around a lot, and there's kind of this one common thread in the whole thing, which everybody should probably have picked up on by now, which is we have this sort of deference to the concept of the tyranny of the majority. You know, we have this deference to institutions like the filibuster, the electoral college, and so on. And the origins of these institutions, the origin of this idea that minority protections are, can you hear that going on right now? <laughs> can you hear that? It's absolutely, it's great. It's great. So I'm going to keep going and I'm keeping this part of the episode. So that way we have some acknowledgement. Evidence, evidence of the COVID times. Evidence of the COVID times. Yeah, we're all fraying at the edges here. But so you have, so you have all these institutions in place that we revere uh, as part of American democracy that, again, are designed to make sure that the majority doesn't accidentally pave over uh, the legitimate concerns of the minority. And it seems to me that at every moment we tap into those institutions and we tap into when they're most relevant, when they're most used, there's always some issue of race there whether it's slavery, whether it's civil rights, whether it's right now. Um, am I, I mean, am I hearing that correctly? And is that something that's, is that something that's, I guess, common knowledge amongst your ilk? Yeah, I, I you know, the you can predict an awful lot of political behavior in America with two variables, party and race. You know, if you know somebody's party identification and their views on racial issues, you have a pretty good understanding of, of how that voter is going to see the world and how they're going to cast a ballot. And the only thing that can actually swamp uh, party ID in, in a lot of cases is race. It is a very powerful force uh, mm -hmm. in politics. Yeah. So originally when I had invited you on, I had, my original plan was to talk about campaign finance reform. And we kind of entered into this free form discussion about um, the erosion of voting rights. In a lot of ways, it seems to me that the most impactful political reform in this country could really be just tackling the issue of race once and for all. Am I, thoughts on that? Is that overly simplistic or? I don't, I it might be overly optimistic. Uh, I, I would agree. <laughs> you know, I, but, but I think that keeping our foot on the gas and recognizing that we have a lot of work here to do is really important. And in the realm of election administration, it's really, really important for people to understand just how much black voters have had to endure in this country you know, it's it's only one generation of a democracy that we've ever had. If if you define a democracy as one with with universal suffrage, it's just been since 1965, within many of our lifetimes, uh, where where black voters in the South were were able to vote, and that's why I try to keep the focus so much on the effects of the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County versus Holder, where you know they effectively said we're not so worried about racially motivated voter disenfranchisement anymore because we haven't seen any in the last 40 years. Well, of course you didn't because the Voting Rights Act was keeping it at bay. And yeah. the, you know, we 
hours after that decision comes down. We see the state of Texas put a strict voter ID law in place. We see across the South and formerly covered jurisdictions change after change to to elections and, and many of them in the, the familiar way, right? And yeah. if you don't have voting rights, nothing else matters. You, you'll never get the policies that you want. And that's that's why I want I like the focus there. And race has got to be central to that conversation about the struggle for voting rights because it has been the central lever in that fight for 250 years. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a really meaningful conversation. And I guess, is there anything else you think we should know or any other policies and reforms you think are critical uh, that that we should know about before we cap things off. I think everybody should, to the extent that they can, <laughs> convening that it's an 800-page bill. Uh, <laughs> everyone should familiarize themselves with the with the premises uh, of HR one. Now, yeah. I understand when people, you know, center right folks especially, have this aversion to the government coming in and, and imposing all kinds of standards and mandates. Yeah, and it does fly against the tradition uh, that we've had for years and years of hyper-localized election administration. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think when, when I talk to election administrators out there, they, many of them will welcome uh, a lot of the reforms that, that come from this bill, the, the ability to actually keep your equipment updated. Uh, the state of election machinery in this country is an entire other episode that you could do. It's, it's appalling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a ticking time bomb. And yeah. to get ahead of many of these issues and to, to put these things in place, the bill has some issues but it's got a heart of gold. And I think uh, we are really at a place now, given what we're seeing across the country at the state legislative level, where people are going to have to decide, are you going to go in with, a, with, a, with an effort to restrict voting, to make it harder, to pick winners and losers legislatively, and to preserve the power for your party to undercut the will of voters after the fact? Is that where you want to go? Or... Do you want to put in well-meaning uh, reforms that are going to preserve the F, the ability of everyone to vote? Mm -hmm. And I, I want to be clear. I want everyone to vote. I want people I don't agree with to vote. I want people I do agree with to vote. And because I, I recognize that government, better policy is going to come from that. And to, to, to skeptical uh, people on the right, you know, it, we've seen this rhetoric for years about that that's created this suspicion that uh, there's fraud everywhere. There's very little fraud. There is some kind of kinds of fraud that we do need to be concerned about. Ballot harvesting is one thing that I really do think we need to, to focus on. And that there are provisions in this bill that actually do do that. But, you know, I, it is empirically false that that these uh, that that expansion of voting benefits one party or the other. That's been replicated now. Uh, Donald Trump proved that Donald that uh, Republicans can win high turnout elections. Every every Republican who ran down ballot from him did pretty well, right? We just mm -hmm. saw eight to ten percent of Republican voters not vote for him. Yeah, and, and that should I think give Republicans comfort. I do believe that they can win elections. Uh, when when more people are voting, and so I, I want 
this country to calibrate its election policies towards helping everyone vote. Uh, and then when people get into government to passing policies that are going to be popular and creating mechanisms for the majority to be removed if it doesn't do that. That's what a democracy does. Yeah. And that's what we should aspire to. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you did, please leave a review on the podcasting platform of your choice. All I want is one person to write a review this week. Just one, so you can all decide amongst yourselves who it is this time. And also, if you have not subscribed yet, there is no time like the present. Gently, gently, gingerly press that uh, subscribe button. There's no need to smash anything. Now, one of the most interesting things to me about this conversation was the way that we got back to the issue about race. And this is something that has come up over the last year and a half or however long this podcast has been going on for. We saw it in episode one. We talked about the plight of Chinese immigrants in the 1800s. We talked about it, of course, during Black History Month in February of 2020, but it has popped up again and again and again. And it just drives a point home to me that in addition to all the reforms we, we need to make, we really need to address the race issue. It is hard enough to have the multicultural democracy we aspire to have here in the United States without a history of racial hierarchy baked into our legal and economic structures. So it's just something we absolutely have to tackle this decade. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHDY's editorial advisor, is Adam Yaffe. No nickname this week. Sorry, Adam. But it is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next... This is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.